Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Well, it has been a really big year for me. My family and I successfully relocated from the UAE to Panama. And one of the first things that I did when I arrived here was search out a new offshore vault to hold a portion of my gold and silver. I looked extensively at all the options, not just in Panama, but around the world. The best places I found was Fort Kobe Depository, located in the free trade zone of Panama Pacifica. It's about 30 minutes away from my house. Now, you might think, wow, How lucky one of the best vaults in the world is only a 30-minute drive away. But the truth is that I moved to Panama so that I would be close to top-notch places just like this. Panama is one of the last bastions of freedom in the world, and entrepreneurs and investors are moving here in droves. I have been fortunate enough to visit Fort Kobe Depository, and I was blown away by the professionalism of the staff, as well as their dedication to the privacy of their clients. They offer things like 24-hour armed response, facial recognition, metal detectors, x-ray of goods, fingerprint biometrics, systemic sensors, volumetric sensors, infrared and thermal CCTV cameras, 24-hour off-site CCTV and alarm monitoring, reinforced concrete with anti-penetration steel, motion sensors, and embedded vehicular disabling devices to halt cars driving through walls. I understand that Panama might not be the first place that you would expect when looking for an offshore safety deposit box and vault. But trust me, I have toured the facilities in Switzerland and Austria, and they don't hold a torch to what has been built here in Panama. Panama really is the most up-and-coming country in the world that protects your privacy and respects your property. And the laws of the country reflect this. And the really incredible thing is you don't even have to live here like me to set up an account with Fort Kobe. The team at Fort Kobe Depository can do everything remotely and they can handle all the logistics of moving your gold and silver to their facility safely and in a tax-favorable manner. And if you have not started putting a portion of your wealth aside in gold and silver, then they can even help you purchase products directly from the Mint at the best possible prices and have them shipped to their facilities in Panama. So whether you are a seasoned gold bug or are just starting to recognize the importance of having some plan B funds outside the banking industry, then the guys at Fort Kobe Depository are who you should talk to. To learn more, I highly recommend you go to fortkobedepository.com. That's F-O-R-T-K-O-B-B-E depository.com.
Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikhail Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a specialist in Australian and international taxation. His expertise is in offshore tax planning and higher-level tax structuring for investors and business owners. His credentials include over 30 years of experience in tax and wealth protection, 10 years of which was with the Australian Taxation Office. He has qualifications as an accountant, a lawyer, and an investment advisor. Wow. He is passionate about sovereignty and freeing business owners and investors from the oppression of unjust governments and asset thefts 100% legally. Please welcome to the show, Warren Black. Warren, how are you? Oh, great. Um, how are you going, Mikhil? Very well, very well. Warren, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory. How did you get into, well, first of all, being a lawyer, an accountant, and an investment advisor, and then I suppose how that led to your journey through sovereignty? Oh, gosh, long story, Mikhail, but very simply, I've always been a bit out of the box. I was involved in spiritual works when I was young. I can remember the university and in all honesty, I started off as an accountant because I was thinking, I asked somebody, what's a really good university degree that will make me a bit of money? And they said, oh, commerce. I said, okay, so I did commerce. That was literally my choice. I, so I did commerce and soon realized that law and anything to do with finance really interested me. And economics was my best marks in school along with maths. So I thought, okay. And that's how I, and, and then I ended up getting a job in the tax office because at the time, I was too shy and conservative and I couldn't get jobs in the big firms. And that's actually how I started. And then as time went on, it, it, it kind of added on layers upon layers. And the biggest change happened in my 30s when I realized that I hated working for the government. I hated working in law firms. It was a really shitty life, to put it bluntly. And I, I woke up when I was like in my early 30s in poor health, miserable, depressed, saying to myself, I don't even want to be doing this anymore. And I just... Cut a long story short, I just bit the bullet, walked out, got myself a, started my own business and I started running a tax business on my own terms, which was about sovereignty and really just kind of, I think my first seminar I did was basically helping people get rid of the greedy gold digging scumbags who are here to steal your wealth and reap what they haven't sown. So it became almost a bit of an up yours to the system was how my career started in that sense. So I really was seen as a very rebellious lawyer and accountant and things like that. And I, I, it's so much to the story. It could probably take 10 minutes, but that's the nuts and bolts of it. And just, it was just organic, mate. Just kept adding layer upon layer. And then I thought, well, let's get an investment advisor qualification to do that as well. And then I got all these qualifications and I ditched them all and I'm now running a completely sovereign business. <laughs> I love it. So you actually worked for the beast to start off with and actually turned against it. So did you actually believe in, in taxation? Did you believe in taxing people before? Not really, no. I mean, my, my position on it was simple. I didn't have any problem with the idea of some kind of contribution for what was being given to me. So it, the fact is I drive on roads and I got stuff and there was a lot of good things in my country. So the idea of paying some kind of fair contribution around 5 to 10% always felt right to me. But anything beyond that felt like theft. And so I used to argue with my bosses in the tax office about certain laws. I just thought it was crazy. And I mean, after a while of working in there, you, you kind of just end up falling into the trap. But as the years went on, I started to realize towards the end, but I really didn't believe in it first and foremost, and that the whole system was clearly just a big, I don't know if con's the right word, Mikhail, but yeah, just the whole idea of basically 
taking 40, 50% intuitively just felt wrong in every capacity. And been having laws which no one could understand, not even the people who administer them, including me. I mean, I understood them better than most, but I still to this day, there's sections of the tax law in Australia, which no one understands, not even the lawyers. It's, it's that crazy. Well, like I, I have no problem with contribution as well. What I have a big yeah. problem with is by force. For me, that's the, that's exactly. the sticking point. You know, like I believe in voluntarianism. If I want to do something, then great. I, I will contribute. I, I give to charities and I, I give my money away. I have no problem with that. But, you know, holding a gun to my head or, or the threat of throwing me in a small cage, if I don't want to surrender half of my wealth, you know, I'm not okay with that. Like, I think that's exactly. pretty awful, to be honest. No, well, I couldn't agree with you more. It's like, um, it's, I don't know if you've heard of the 10 maxims of commercial law, but one of the 10 maxims is that, you know, law cannot compel performance. And I'm a big student of history. Like my father is one of Australia's top historians. And so history is in my blood. And I spent a lot of my 30s and 40s studying underground history and alternate history that was erased from the history books. That was one of my hobbies. And one of the things that, because in 1913, you probably know or don't know, but they, a lot of the history books were purchased by various like companies and then they erased them and changed them. And and certain things are just removed. So one of the things when you actually read the correct history and go through a lot of that, one thing you'll see throughout history is that times like we're in today were generally always never, were never sustainable. And one thing in particular was that any society or civilization built on force, it was always seen for what it was. Because if you actually think about our humanity, we're born to kind of be sovereign. We're born to maybe you know, get together in a group of community, like 10, 20, 30, even 100, but then everything's by choice. So really what we're in today, we're not in anything by choice. We're in like a big takeover, a pretty much a military takeover. That's how I see the whole thing going on right now. So countries like Australia, US are just pretty much under a military takeover. And if you read history, you will actually see that pretty much everything that you're seeing from the, the systems, the infrastructure, where the laws are set up, are actually modeled on King Hammurabi's Babylonian laws and various other laws designed to actually take away people's freedom. So it's quite, it's quite awful. Well, I study a lot of history as well. And I think that if you look at any of the Roman histories and then look at the monetary, like I, I like studying the monetary sides of the history. And yeah. when you look at the debasement of the currencies and currencies going rampant in inflation and things like that, it's always the sign of the end of the civilization. And you can look Pretty right much. now, it's what's happening in not just the United States, but many places in the world. And the currency is just becoming worthless. Like the purchasing power is going to zero. You know, you've lost something like 100% or 90 some odd percent of the purchasing power over the last 100 years. And a dollar is not a dollar anymore. And they're talking about quantitative easing number four you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars more into the system. And, you know, it's this invisible tax that you can't see, but actually takes up such a giant portion of your income. Okay, so you're, you're a tax lawyer and accountant, um, and you deal a lot with the taxes that we can see, but we, I'm sure we could have an entire conversation about the taxes you don't see. And Exactly. And it's just unbelievable when you really start to dig into these types of things and understand it and what's happening. It's like, it's like, I don't understand how the wool's been pulled over so many people's eyes. 
I think people don't like to talk about uncomfortable topic, like any, anything uncomfortable, like discovering there's a secret, you know, pedophilia ring going on or a secret bis going on or something. People instinctively want to avoid hearing unpleasant truths or things that are going on. So I find when you have these conversations with people, people like yourself and people who have got into the business world and that, I've noticed these people tend to be a lot more aware who've got into business, who've generally built wealth, they soon work out how the system works. Whereas most of the population who unfortunately are the ones who actually vote and who are involved in our decision-making, many of them have got jobs that rely on the system. So of course they're gonna they're gonna back the system. And because they get well paid, they get well looked after. So whoever set it up is very clever. That's all I can say because as you said, there's these hidden taxes, there's these stealth taxes, there's these like over here where I'm living, You've got things like councils just hitting you with rates notices for things that you're like, what are these things? Or now giving you parking fines or now speeding fines with cameras, basically for doing like a small amount over the limit, which has got nothing to do with road safety, but everything to do with a hidden tax. Mm-hmm, so, yeah, I'm sure I'm, sure I'm preaching to convert on that one. Well, yeah, and absolutely. And, and to circle back what you just said about uncomfortable conversations, it's funny, I'll send out an email to my list and I'll, I'll mention something about socialists taking over the world and, you know, some of my stronger opinions on the political scene. And I will literally get, and I mean literally, I'll get death threats from people. I'll, I'll get people say, I am going to come down to Panama and I'm going to find you and I'm going to beat you. I'm going to, like, I'm going to... Are you kill. serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, this, when you challenge people's beliefs, especially the socialists, like the, the people on the left, they're just... They're so emotional. Anytime you, you talk about um, any of the politics, not even just the politics, but their belief structures of what is right and wrong, like they just can't handle it. They can't even have a conversation about it. And, you know, my first reaction is like, well, what the fuck are you doing on my list anyways? You know, exactly. I, like, okay, I, I don't write right-wing stuff. I'm a libertarian. I write economically on the right and socially on the left, you know, but I mean, the the, the social aspects for me have never been overly important. And perhaps that's because I'm a white heterosexual male. Um, I've not felt the same type of discrimination that maybe other types of groups have. So for me, socially, I don't I don't feel like that social justice has ever really affected my life. And I'm sure I'll get some hate mail for this, for saying this as well. But economics is the way that I feel, you know, it's the taxation. It's the, it's the people going after my business. It's the government trying to seize assets. You know, those are the things that really boil my blood, but I don't know. What do what do you think? What is your opinion, Warren? Oh, look, I'm the whole political incorrectness and the way that the world has gone right now. And what and all that kind of stuff with the left-wing stuff i just watch an astonishment and horror because yeah i mean it's obvious as heck and you just have to look at venezuela and any and and cyprus and anywhere but as soon as you go on a socialist thing you are you're always going to end up with revolutions you're always going to end up with it falling apart so it's 100 percent inevitable what's going to happen the issue that i see my my opinion is a bit complicated but i'll try and explain it I think it goes deeper in the sense that when you've got a society where greed and capitalism 
almost gets out of control and inevitably gets balanced by socialism. So we kind of live in a world of a pendulum, as I said, whereas in an ideal world, when you look at prosperous communities throughout history, they generally had a very good balance between letting their citizens accumulate personal wealth, but then the citizens have voluntarily generally been very generous givers towards projects. And countries you find that are very prosperous countries without much taxes, inevitably you find the citizens got very involved in their community, looking out for the poor and taking responsibility for the needs of the less fortunate. So as soon as that kind of side starts breaking down and everyone gets caught up with wealth and capitalism and then the government starts getting its share and rising taxes and everything like that, um, yeah, look, inevitably then, then if governments in a way get a permission to keep raising the taxes because people see they're missing out, they're not being part of the growth and development of the society. So then they start kind of pushing for higher taxes and if they get a big enough voice, it starts happening and you have this cycle where it happens, it collapses, they then realise it was stupid and then go back. And we're almost living in a cyclical thing and I just would love to see the day when, in a way, we grow up in the world and we go, okay, let's just set up an infrastructure that's going to you know, promote prosperity and at the same time setting up really good programs to make sure that, that everyone basically gets to share in the growth and the prosperity and good fortune of a country, whereas usually what happens is that a lot of people do miss out. And again, I know that people have choices and all that kind of stuff, and they certainly do, but you're always going to have the less fortunate, the smarter ones, the less smart ones. And so I do believe we do have some responsibility to really to help that. That's why I do a lot of spiritual work. I do a lot of work you know, outside of this now devoted to helping other people. And I find it gives you more fulfillment in life, Mikkel. But and been just simply focusing on my own wealth creation. But yeah, but I'm sure that you would not feel the same if someone held a gun to you and said, Warren, every week oh, you need absolutely. to go on Sunday and you need absolutely. to devote your time to people. It would exactly. mean that's the same point. thing and you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do it. It's, no, that's my whole point. So ideally you do that, but certainly when governments do that, you actually create the opposite problem because now what happens is that by the government's actually doing that, I believe that they actually they stifle what I call a natural instinctive thing in us to help mm -hmm. our fellow man. So let's just say a government walks up and takes 50% of my, of my effing money, excuse the French, you've got nothing left over to help other people. Exactly. And then the government says, oh, we've got to use it to help other people. But of course they don't. Most of that money just goes for, you know, one of them to go on a private helicopter to watch a footy game. And then the other one goes to pay for an apartment for the guy's mistress. And then to pay for all these different government departments who do jack shit, bull crap, nothing. So in actual fact, all that happens is that the poor don't get looked after and people don't. So no, no, I'm actually saying that that's exactly why high taxation regimes actually get the opposite effect from what you think, because it actually breaks down people's inherent desire to use their money for good. Whereas I know these days I don't pay a lot of tax um, legally by the way I'm set up. So I'm actually in a position to use my money to do good as well as for myself, my family and for other people. Exactly. So no, I think high taxes and um, and laws about confiscating assets is extraordinary. It's like something that it's. Oh, I mean, when, if if people sent me the kind of emails that they sent you, I would be like, I mean, I would have, I'd have to really restrain myself from writing the same thing back to me, but I would just move them off my list in one second. Well, absolutely, and we could have a whole conversation on corruption in the government, but. 
besides that, it's just the wasting of money. It's the bureaucracy. It's the, it's the paper that has to go from one office to get a stupid rubber stamp to go to another office that needs to get another stupid rubber stamp. And it has to go to 12 different offices and they just create work for it themselves and each other. And, it's, and it just goes around and around in a circle. And that type of regulation, it just stifles entrepreneurs and their ability to create. Because really entrepreneurs and business owners are the ones that drive the economy. They were the ones that are creating goods. And you know what? The government doesn't create anything. They don't build anything. They don't do anything. It's just crazy at all. Like, it's, it's just unbelievable. And it's like, okay, if you stay out of the way and stop creating extra red tape, like you, you do it under the, the guise of helping people and protecting people. But it, it's complete baloney. Like, it's just, it's just not true whatsoever. There's so many things that can be self-regulated or could be regulated by the industry. And you get these people in here who don't build anything, who don't create, and they're telling you how to run your business. No, I, I'm just not okay with that. I think it's just awful. Yeah, no, I, I, I've got even more radical views probably on, on that. I think a lot of it's run by a very deliberate agenda by some very um, dark, you know, basically individuals who are doing that for their own gain and their own purposes. And yeah, I mean, because so people fall into that trap and I don't know if you are subscribed or involved in Bill Bonner's stuff. Have you heard of him? Yeah, of course, Agora Financial. Yeah, he's brilliant. But like his book, Hormageddon, he actually talks about that the government actually these days are really just basically parasites. They don't actually do anything. They, they suck off people. And many people who've got jobs, and this was one of the reasons, Mikel, I stopped actually being a, a lawyer. I remember reading this stuff, and I just sat there in horror one day and thought to myself, now, if I'm reading this book correctly, what I'm actually doing by doing this kind of stuff is I'm really basically, my sole job depends on being part of an extortionate, corrupt system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because there's, there's no other reason for me otherwise. I'm not actually doing anything of value. Now, I could justify it and say that I am and I help people, but I actually don't. I'm actually just working for a system. And, you know, people like bankers, that's all they're doing. They're working for a money system. It's about, you know, selling people money that doesn't actually exist. Mm -hmm. um, the tax office is basically people having jobs or working for a commission of some kind, enforcing laws that are fundamentally stupid and or, or corrupt. So I, I just decided that day, now nah, I'm going to get out of this area and I'm going to somehow re-educate myself, which was hard because I'd grown up in a very university way of thinking, but I did. I got myself out of it. So now I've got a business where I actually help people get out and go to places like Panama to join you and um, I help people build their wealth and go international or set up all kinds of creative ways legally to minimize taxes. And I even show people alternate ways to invest or trade. So now I feel like I'm actually doing something at least that makes some difference on the time. Well, I know the feeling because every day that I go to bed and I've helped someone to legally reduce their taxes, every dollar that they doesn't go to the government, I feel like I've yeah. done a good job. You know, like I sleep so soundly at night because my motto is starve the beast. As you should. You know, like I'm okay. I'm not a pacifist. Like I said earlier, I'm a libertarian. You know, if you punch me in the face, I'll probably turn around and punch you right back. But I mean, <laughs> dropping bombs on women and children in, in the Middle East or in Africa or, or any places, it's just, it's despicable and it's wrong. And yeah. that gets paid for by 
taxes. Like, where do, where do you think the money comes from? So this is my, my small little humble way of, of helping the world is by spreading my information and spreading my knowledge and creating content in and around, you know, legally reducing your taxes. And, you know, I have such respect for people like you, Warren, who, who work in the trenches and who do these types of things and help people with your own two hands. I think it's just brilliant. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, well, to me, the more people who get the message out, and that's why I love it when, how, you know, you and I talk and do these podcasts together because we're really, I just reckon people like us should combine and really join forces across the planet because I do believe we've got some tax revolutions coming. And my personal little belief or thing I've been saying is if you actually look at the demographics and what's happening now, like the millennials and, the, and of course, the ones after the millennials, are pretty much a whole different breed of people from us. Mm -hmm. And they're growing up with a whole idea of where many of them will never own their own home unless things change. Yeah, it's the reality. It's true. Yeah, and so many of them have got less to lose than we've got. And I'm noticing the number of millennials who come to me. I don't know if you've seen this, Mikhail, but I've actually had millennials and even younger people turn up and say, you know, I don't care what it takes. I'm not paying taxes. Like my, my partner, She's like 25, so she's a millennial, like quite a bit younger than me. Jesus told me, she goes, I don't care what it takes. I refuse to, to pay taxes I, unless it's fair, and I'll do whatever it takes. You just have to show me. That's what she told me. She said, I don't care what it takes. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that even my kids, like I've got two 15-year-old twin sons who run all, one of my businesses. They run all the back end of it. And they just openly told me, they said, well, why would we pay taxes to a government? So they said, when we... When, so they're already at 15 working up ways to make sure they never do. And I think you'll find that enough people that the millennials are thinking this way. So the system will starve to death. That's how I see it. So we're heading for a revolution and we're heading coming times ahead. So I think it's. Well, I have my own opinion. So what I have seen is the entrepreneurs definitely think the way that you and I do, but a lot of the people who have gone to university in, in, this generation, millennials and the younger, and they've racked up ridiculous amounts of student debt. Like I'm talking a hundred thousand, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars before they've ever entered the workforce, before they've ever earned a dollar, they're starting their careers in a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. And that's gotta be a pretty scary thought. Like for me, I would hate that. I, I would yeah. think that's just very scary. Terrible. But then you have these politicians who come along and they say, you know what? Uh, if you vote socialist, if you vote commie, uh, we'll, we'll forgive all of your debt. We'll forgive all student debt. It's like rainbows and sunshine and unicorns and pots of gold. You know, The shit's make-believe. It doesn't really exist, but they promise yeah. them this kind of thing. And, and they're the ones that I'm really terrified about because they're the ones who are going to turn the country into Venezuela. Like, if exactly. we continue promoting entrepreneurship and business owners people will go you know what okay i'm 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 hiring people i i'm building something a technology or an app or or a service or a product and i'm going out into the marketplace and the marketplace is paying me what i'm worth you know and why would i want to give away 20 30 40 50 percent of my profits to the government i want to take that money i want to reinvest it into the business because i want to help more people like for me that's where it's at. That's, that's my goal. But the ones who go out there and you know, do a business degree so that they can go into business and end up with $100,000, $200,000 worth of debt to work in an office, 
doing administrative stuff it's just it just makes me want to pull my hair out like i just don't get it no i couldn't agree with you more it's i'm um, sorry i i had it on mute without thinking so that was why i went quiet um but yeah so yeah it's interesting your perspective because i'm seeing that in america right now i don't know if you've um i'm trying to think of the guy but there's a particular subscription that i'm part of actually yeah, Paul Stains from me and they were talking about how right now that over in America, you've got like Detroit and places like that and others who in New York, and New York actually drove Amazon out because Amazon was going to set up over there and yep. create 25,000 jobs for people. And yep. the reason that they didn't end up doing it was it's such an outcry, like this capitalistic bunch of scumbags coming in and, you know, and they're going to be getting a tax concession because yep. New York was going to get the tax concession. So they drove them out. And, it was just like, it was like extraordinary. And then in Detroit, of course, what they did was they decided, hey, guess what? We're going to increase our taxes and get more money out of these rich people to help you guys out. So the two richest people left straight away and they, and they actually made less money next year. And that's the stupidity of socialism. And, but yet people get people, as you said, they, they buy it hook, line and sinker. So yeah, there's almost like two extremes on the millennials. There's, the millennials who are openly saying we're not going to pay taxes and they're not going to pay, you know, this kind of stuff. But then like the others, like you're saying, who are getting really caught up in the whole system and very scaringly. Um, yeah. I've been, as they vote these guys in, I can see tax rates like going to insane levels. Like if, if Donald Trump loses the next election, America's going to be hitting 70, 80% tax rates. Yeah. They want to raise the marginal tax rate to 70% under, I don't know, Bernie Sanders or one of the other communists and like listening to and and my subscribers will have heard me rant on my newsletter many a times about AOC and her views on taxation and the Green New Deal. You know, if I watch like 20 minutes of her on YouTube, I want to shoot myself in the face. Like it's, it's fucking unbelievable to listen to the, uh, the rubbish that comes out of her mouth. And (laughs) You know, and, and I hope you're right. I hope that we do get more of the younger generation who who are putting their foot down and, and recognizing that this is wrong and they're not going to be paying taxes and take active steps oh, to, to legally reduce their tax bill. Oh, I've, look, I can see a lot of I can see a lot of people doing that. Like I'm getting I'm getting to extremes. Like I suppose that my thing is my views a little bit tainted, I'll be honest in that. I'm getting um, what's called the millennials coming to me who are like, nah, we're not going to do this. Like I had a 21 year old guy come to me and saying, I don't care what it takes. You got to show me how to do this. And Mm -hmm. so there's many millennials who are actually getting into cryptos and they're taking radical action. So it's almost like, I'm like, I'm finding millennials and the younger people are a lot more one extreme or the other. They're either right in the system or they're right getting out of the system, which in a way does make it easy. But I know myself living in Australia right now, I'm very, I don't know if nervous is the right word, but I really don't know what to expect next because you can see, you can see rights and freedoms are being taken away. We've got some absolute crazy, you know, motherfuckers, excuse the French, but I know you, you, you seem to be similar to me, but, you know, running our country and some of the laws they're talking about passing at the moment, like it just came out in our media, but they're actually 72 social security new new laws around national security but have been passed but have been hidden from the public so this freedom's been taken away like crazy over here at the moment and yeah and of course like like with taxes i certainly don't see taxes reducing over here 
Whereas at least in many other countries now, they're quickly realizing this race to the bottom. And if they don't start reducing their taxes, they're going to lose their citizens. So there are mm-hmm. countries who are being a bit smarter. But West, Australia and US, if anything, are getting worse. So this morning, I was, uh, I was messaging a friend of mine. And uh, I lived in the Middle East. I lived in the Middle East from 2011 till this year, till 2019. And at the beginning of 2018, they introduced a 5% VAT. And it was like January 1st, 5% VAT. And the day it came in, I said, I guarantee within a year, year and a half, this will go up. As soon as a government gets a taste for tax, they never want to give it up. Anyways, I was having a conversation exactly. with my friend this morning and uh, he showed me an article on the Collège Times, which is basically run by the government of the UAE. And it showed that by December, they'll be putting in 100% tax on tobacco, a 50% tax on soft drinks. They're going to introduce an income tax, a property tax, uh, and a corporate tax. And they're going to take the 5% VAT and double it to 10%. All within 18 months of the original 5% tax coming in. It was like unbelievable. Where is this? That, this is in Abu Dhabi, Dubai. I lived in Abu Dhabi for eight years. And uh, this was, you know, an excellent offshore tax-free jurisdiction. Yeah, I lived I know, there for almost 10 years and, and it was brilliant. And now they're adding in taxes as fast as they possibly can. In Abu Dhabi, no, you've really give, you've taken me by surprise. I thought I was up to speed with stuff, but... I didn't realize that they're now joining this, this party of horror. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll make sure I put the link to the article in the show notes for your, for your episode, Warren. So anyone who's That's listening, nice. please go and read the article. And you, you can say, oh, you don't, don't believe everything that you read in the newspaper. Listen, the newspapers in the UAE, are, they're, they're softening people up. It's completely government run. And I can say a lot of this shit now because I don't live there anymore. So... You know, they have no control over, over what I do. Not that I was ever really censored by any means. But, um, yeah, like a lot of the newspapers there are just pure propaganda. And uh, they're definitely softening people up. But, yeah, the, 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 the 100% on tobacco and the 50% on soft drinks is coming in in December. That's, like, really, really soon. So we'll see about yes. the income tax, what that ends up being. But, uh, you know, we're losing offshore jurisdictions. But I think that any country that deregulates and lowers income tax, you're going to have heaps of entrepreneurs moving there. My new book, Expat Secrets, is based on my own experiences from traveling to more than 100 countries over the last 20 years of being an expat. There's no fluff in this book, just actionable advice from someone who leads this type of lifestyle every single day. So if you want to pay zero taxes, live overseas, and make giant piles of money, then I want you to grab a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, on Amazon today. Just go to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. Yeah, well, of course, Panama in 2012, when... um Martinelli, President Martinelli bought in that friendly nations visa. I certainly boosted the economy. And I can tell you now that, to, I mean, I, I don't know a single country that I find to set up people still to this day was as good as Panama. Like, yeah. obviously, that if you've 
got 20 million and you can, you can go and buy a, a, an apartment in Monaco or something. But even then, Panama, I can remember turning up at the airport and I can remember seeing the list of things that I was meant to bring into customs. And I went to declare it. The lady stared at me like I was an idiot and waved me through. And I said, no, no, I've got some stuff to declare. She just took her head and just, just pushed me out the door. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love this country, Dad. And I've had clients turn up to their accountant in Panama and ready to pay some taxes. And the accountant goes, what do you mean? This is Panama. You don't pay tax. And they're going like, oh, no, but I did earn a bit of income over here. They go, oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's the mentality here as well. I just love it. So a friend of mine said to me, or was telling me a story, uh, he lived in an apartment building and some old man didn't like people parking in front of the apartment building, okay? Big, big place, you know? So he goes yeah. out there one day and makes a, a sign and he hammers the signpost into the road, into the, into the, the asphalt out in front, put up a sign saying, no parking here. Like the the freedom you must feel to be able to go out there and do something like that. It's just like, it's so intense, you know? I was like, that's brilliant. Or, or a couple oh, of weeks I ago, I, we, were, we were traveling back from a gold vault. I, I have some friends who own a gold vault here that I, um, I store some stuff in. So he's driving me back. We're in this armored car uh, and we're going across the bridge and there's an accident up front. So it's backed up traffic and it's, it's two lines go, uh, two traffic lines going and two traffic lines coming back. And suddenly one of the guys just pulls into oncoming traffic and just makes a third line going across the bridge and everybody just joins in and they just, everybody just starts driving on the, the wrong side of the road and everyone on the other side now has to squeeze into one line. So I was like, Wow. Like that would just never happen in Canada or the States. Like people would just never do that. It's like, that's, that's freedom. That's freedom like ingrained in their mentality and their belief systems down to their core that they just don't give a shit and they'll just do whatever the hell they want. It's like in Philippines, like I was over in Philippines and I, I went to his island called Shogal and I can remember just hiring a motorbike, which by the way, provided you're at least, I think 12 years old, you can hire a bike nice. and I was on this bike and just going through, going down the island and you come to these intersections and basically people would just kind of wait. And if you're going too fast, people would be like saying, slow down, slow down. And it was just the most completely self-regulated place. I remember thinking, I felt so safe because people said, oh, you must have been nervous riding a bike, motorbike, because I'm not even a normal motorbike rider in Australia. I said, I'd never ride a motorbike in Australia. But I said, well, it's all regulated and all roads. But I said in Shergal, no problem at all because everyone was just common sense. As soon as anyone was going too fast, you would get kind of dirty looks from the locals, like slow down, <laughs> um, you know, ride, go at a decent speed, mate, kind of thing. And, and, you, and yeah, I, I just remember feeling incredibly safe, enjoying the experience immensely. And I, I, I was actually had this friend who was telling me in Lebanon, Nicole, that she – but when they bought in speed cameras in Lebanon, after a week, they gave them up. You know why? They gave them up because basically the citizens were just, as soon as they were released, the citizens at night went and took the cameras and grabbed them and went off with them. And then the <laughs> next day, um, a number of them offered to sell them back to the government um, at basically an extortionate price. So they said, we won't give them back to you unless you give us some money. So the government did. They gave them back. They put them up. Then they went and stole them again. So in the end, they gave up. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man. Yeah. Like I was just in China the last, I don't know, the last three weeks and speaking about cameras, I'm like, I haven't wrote about this yet, but I've never seen so many cameras in my life. It's funny because like in most places in the world, they'll have like little tiny cameras that you don't even notice like CCTV and stuff. In, in China, they have these monstrous, like they must be like two feet long, like a half a foot, like they're so big. And there'll be like three of them or four of them pointed at an entrance to a parking lot or on the street. It's like the government really wants you to know that you're being watched. 1994. Oh my God, it's unbelievable. Like the technology actually looks like it's from 20 years ago or 30 years ago because they're so big and bulky. But I knew within the first day, it's because they want you to know that you're being watched, you know? And it's from all angles. We were sitting at a hot pot place and in the hot pot restaurant, I counted something like 24 or 25 cameras inside the restaurant just from where oh. I was sit sitting, just from where I was sitting. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's, I, remember, I remember back in the 1980s, I was going to, you might have heard him, and there was a guy called Barry Smith who was a libertarian um, Christian preacher. And, you know, most times when I'd go to church meetings in the 80s, I'd get bored after no time. But this guy had me fascinated because he was very informative. He gave a whole heap of um, information and knowledge based, you know, very factual stuff around government changes and laws coming in. And, um, yeah, I remember he, he, he was saying at the time, and he was ridiculed in Australia because he came up and was saying, you know, in the future you're going to have surveillance cameras. And he went through a series of things that would be coming in and you're going to have it monitored everywhere. Then it's going to be this, when you're going to hear these words come out, and literally about 90% of what he said has already happened. Mm -hmm. And um, the only thing that hasn't fully happened is he said eventually you won't have cash in your society, and, and that will seem to be a good thing. But in fact, it won't be because it will mean that there will be complete electronic control. Because I've an electronic government monitored money system that will give people the authority to basically... Um, control everything that you're doing and monitor you and control your life because they'll control your money on every level. And then he said in the worst case scenarios, they're even going to get, they're going to bring, bring it in. So you actually imprint your credit card or imprint your, on your right hand or your forehead. And of course, when he said all that and he said, and of course people were like, are oh, you a complete nutcase? But of course now in many places, they are trialing this kind of technology where people can actually get imprints on their right hand and, even on this and, 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 and things like that on the basis of if it's on you, then of course it's much harder to, to steal it or defraud it because it's basically in your system and you can't lose it. So pretty much everything he said is coming to pass. I'm just watching an astonishment. Well, no, and commenting on the, the surveillance, I, I wish that what's happening in Lebanon with smashing cameras or stealing them and, and, selling them back. I wish that was happening in more places. But no, you're you're 100% right. There is a war on cash and and they do want everything electronic because then if they don't like you, they don't like the look of your face, Warren, they can just turn your money off. They have complete power over you, complete control. It's one of the biggest reasons that I'm a, such a proponent for gold and silver. You know, I believe in sound money. I don't believe in this fractional reserve system. I don't believe in the the Federal Reserve. You know, it's it's debasement of currency. It's um, it's turning on the printing presses anytime you want. Yep, completely agree with you. 
No, I've got gold and silver. Um, I'm sure you've got, I mean, I've got access to various people who you can buy gold from, you know, officially or even unofficially and everything. I'm sure you basically are very familiar with that kind of side, but there's so many people are buying gold now under the radar. It's, I'm just seeing it happen like crazy. Well, yeah, and look at the terror that silver has been on this year. Well, gold as well, but silver has just been an unbelievable performer. And if you look historically at precious metals and the purchasing power and, and what they do over time, it, it beats all other assets out there. Like, uh, but then you'll always hear governments talk about how it's a barbaric relic and you know it's worthless and we don't need these things anymore. But then... Look at them. They're stockpiling it like crazy. China's, <laughs> China's adding massive amounts to their gold reserves. Russia's buying it like it's going out of, out of fashion. Even countries like Poland has increased their, their reserves by thousands of percents over the last year or 18 months. You know, And then there's some countries out in the world who are selling it because they have nothing left. Venezuela, they've, they've liquidated all of their gold reserves. The gold that was kept in London... They can't repatriate because of some type of bollocks. They say, well, it's not really yours. I think the real reason is that London doesn't have the gold anymore. They went out there and they spent it or they lent it out. Or, oh, exactly. You know, it's not in the vaults anymore. There's so many fraud that's going on. For me, I, I believe in either sticking it under my mattress, so to speak, or private gold vaults. And it has to be 100% allocated gold. None, none of this fractional ownership. Fractional ownership is bullshit. Doesn't really work. It's it's not really legal. Um, I don't want my money being lent out to other people. Um, I put it in a safety deposit box, and no one else has access to it. No, exactly. I mean, it's interesting because one of the things that um, as I mentioned, one of my other little um, studies is I'm a big student, and of course, one of my businesses I run is a spiritual awakening movement. So I, I've spent a lot of my life studying many of the yogis like um, Buddha and Krishna and Christ and pretty much anyone Indian yogis. And I started to see more and more why, why Jesus said, and even though it's been probably one of the most misunderstood, criticized, the love of money is the root of all evil. I think he's so right. You know, I think that, and what's interesting is when you actually read the correct teachings of what, what Christ and what Buddha taught, they never taught you to be poor at any stage. In fact, quite the contrary. Jesus himself was funded by a very rich very wealthy women of his day and, um, and other people. Um, Buddha and many of his great teachers were very, very handsomely funded by many people. What they taught, though, was when you get caught up with accumulation of wealth to detriment of, of the needs of people and of the society, that's when it starts happening. Mm -hmm. And when you go through and study throughout various times of history and you read through even you know, the history of Babylon, one of the original civilizations, that's exactly what they did. It was all about accumulation and creating central energy groups. And that was actually one of the first times you'll see on the planet um, well, in this modern time. I mean, the planet goes back obviously fair way, but in those modern last thousands of years, when, when it got into strife. So, yeah, as soon as I, I've noticed that people and government and society is a collective where it's almost like the obsession with money at, at, at almost at the expense of anything else, can cause so much problems. Whereas when governments and when society as a whole is about, yeah, look, doing good and, and looking after the people concerned and encouraging wealth and things like that and having correct mentality about it as well. Like I, one of the things of gold and silver 
and even precious metals. Like I'm, I, I love, I've noticed that many of the rich, and I'm sure you'd see this, like when they studied the investment portfolio of the high net worth, having liquid assets, having things like gold, silver, very popular as wine collections, art collections, beautiful precious stones, all tangible assets. And you find that the very, very, those who are very wealthy, even though they may own some intangible assets like some cash or some bonds or whatever else, the bulk of their assets is always in real tangible wealth. Mm-hmm. And so it's fascinating that that's what they're, that's what they're doing. That's what, what governments are doing. But then they're kind of telling people, oh, no, 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 it's gold and silver and this kind of stuff. That isn't real money. If you produce your own currency, it's a fraud and things like that. Whereas really the ability for, for people to create their own money system even, that's been an inalienable right since I can remember. You know, the ability to, if you just want to, let's say that me, me, you and 50 other people got together, create our own medium of exchange. Yet in some countries, even to create your own medium of exchange within your own community outside of the government network is actually a criminal offence. Which when you think about it, it's just, it's just it's mind-blowing really. Oh, absolutely. And I'm surprised that cryptocurrency has gotten as far as it has because it really is challenging the establishment and all the power that they've taken, you know, generations to build up because once you control the money supply, that's all that really matters. You do, you do, what's the famous quote by Rockefeller? Um, I don't care who writes the laws. Um, if you give me control of the money supply. Yeah, I think they've got a special plan for crypto. My feeling is what you will find will happen is that some kind of, eventually they'll, they'll, they'll give it a bit of shit like they've been doing it. Then you'll find some currency will come out that will be given credence and which the governments will seem to encourage and then people will think, oh, this is really good. It will shoot up the value so everyone will jump in on it. It'll become some mainstream currency and then all they will do is get exactly the same thing as what they had previously but in a new form. So I think whoever's behind is a bit smarter, in a sense, than many of us think. And that I reckon I might be completely wrong, but I know that if I was basically in charge of the government, cryptocurrency wouldn't worry me as much as people would think because I'd think, well, let's just let the thing get some legs and then we'll come out and give something that's official, that's easy to use, that can, be, that can, that can go worldwide at the blink of an eye, like PayPal. Because I look at PayPal. PayPal originally came out and was meant to be a digital alternative way, but PayPal now is no different to normal currency. It's completely regulated by the IRS and accountable to them. So I, my, my personal feeling is you'll eventually find that there will become some cryptocurrency that will take off, but you can rest assured whichever one it is will basically be on side with the SEC and the government and effectively the same beast in a new form. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I still have my reservations about cryptocurrency as well. I got in, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago and ran up a small fortune in cryptocurrency and just as quickly, just as quickly saw it go not to nothing, but definitely lost a considerable amount of its value. And I just found that there were so many scam artists out there that were in the industry and I don't know. I, 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 I certainly don't want regulation to be brought into it. That's not what I'm calling for. But I mean, we have a lot of kinks to, to, to work out before, before it's ever going to be a real uh, challenge to something like Visa or MasterCard, at least in commerce. No, look, I agree. It's, it's still very much in the, what I call, it's in the, it's in the stages of what's called the dark ages, 
we're still establishing and finding its way. And eventually what will happen is a lot of those people will get weirded out, inevitably anyway, because people start waking up and realising that the days of being able to invest in some silly coin and then basically making a million dollars overnight is pretty much over. Mm-hmm. And now we're entering into the stage where real cryptocurrencies will survive. So, and I'm noticing that already, like people who are investing in cryptos who previously were just investing in anything. Like I, I've done, I've done actually quite well in cryptocurrencies and I can, I'll, I'll say it's mainly because of one, one of my clients. So I'm very grateful for who really did show me the way and told me what to do. And the one thing he told me, which was very good advice was he just said to me, look, he said, Bitcoin is a Google instead of cryptos. This guy had made millions of dollars out of it. He said, even though you won't get the gains of anything else, you won't lose as much and it will remain solid. So he just got me into Bitcoin originally. Mm-hmm. But then in terms of um, alternative ones, he showed me a couple of others he'd researched. And I mean, there was probably, of the ones he gave me, most of the ones didn't do very well. But the one I put most of my money in was the one he told me, he said, this one's going to do very well. And it did. And so... Overall, but the one thing I've learned, you've got to be very selective and very discreet with cryptos and take it for what it is. It's just another form of investment. It's kind of in a way like the Uber to taxis, where it's giving you an alternate way of doing something that I think is a lot better. Mm-hmm. But the banking system, it's faster, it's better. And as time goes on, it will get even better still. Like you can, I already am aware of a new crypto that's just come out right now, for example, which I'm invest, looking into which I'm probably going to invest a significant amount in, but it's actually got a Visa card linked to it and all kinds of other stuff. And it's actually really, um, and, and yeah, very, very independent. And there's other ones being set up as well, which I've invested in, but I've even got online sports gambling and sports betting platforms as well. And although some of them will work and some won't, I do reckon that cryptos have got a part to play in what's to come. I just think people, it's important of a realistic thing and not to see it as some, as a new way the world's got to go. I just see it as another way of doing things, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I would say that my favorite, absolute favorite part about cryptocurrency is that it's actually getting young people, actually people of all generations, to start talking about money again. Like, I think that is so unbelievably important, you know? And I, was grow- I grew up in a house that was, we were basically told, like, it's rude to talk about money. That was kind of society's view was like, it's rude to talk about money. It's rude to talk about politics. It's rude to talk about religion. Um, You know, but I think these are really important things that people need to discuss. And when you have people sitting around the dinner table and they're having a conversation about what is fiat money and what is the federal reserve system and what is a different way of doing things and, and how can we transact and why do we need banks in place at the first place? You know, those are important conversations. And if it's crypto that's going to spark that conversation, then I'm all for that. Absolutely you know, I, I think that that's totally just agree. so important. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I, yeah, like it's interesting. Mind you, my kids are not really interested in crypto, which is quite, which surprised me, but not one of them is. But I do agree with you. Cryptos have certainly got more people talking about it when I, than I've met before. But honestly, I do believe that the best time to have been in cryptos is a time that most of us missed, including myself, which was 2016 and 17. And I think the biggest lesson I learned from cryptos, if I was not so much the money I made, because I didn't make anywhere near as much as many of my clients as I got in, because I mean, I was one of the one of the clowns who was going around saying the whole thing was a scam in 2016 and 17. Yeah. 
And then fortunately, one of my clients pulled me up who'd made millions of dollars out and got, and got me into it. And like I said, I did make some money in the end. But the one thing he told me I've never forgotten is he said, because uh, uh, I said to him, how did you be so successful? He said, well, I challenged my assumptions in life. He said, I realized that most of my life, I was a very cautious guy. I was very critical of things. And then I'd later find out I was wrong. So he said, I decided to just do everything in reverse. So anything I thought looked a scam, I'd have an open mind. So he said, when I first looked at cryptos, I thought it was a dodgy thing, but I thought, well, let's just research it. So he said, I started researching it in 2015. After three months of doing it, I was convinced that actually was actually a good thing. And I got in. So he said, ever since then, that's how I've been running my life and doing very well. So since that call with him, it's changed my life. I'm finding now that I, I really just have opened my mind to stuff. And when I, and anything that's new that people are talking about, I just ask myself, more sovereign mindset, if that makes sense, a far more liberal, like more creative way of being. Because that's what I'm finding with, with very sovereign, very successful people. They're, they're willing to challenge their assumptions in life. Absolutely. I think being a contrarian and, and looking at things from a different point of view and possibly going against the grain of, of conventional thinking, I think that's a surefire way of expanding your horizon and, and definitely of, of finding some really interesting um, investments and opportunities out there. Well, good for you for, for taking some of those things on board because I know a lot of people who will still say today it's just it's an absolute scam, it's, a, it's junk, it's worthless, it has no intrinsic value. But then I guess my challenge would be, well, what, what intrinsic value does a US dollar or an Australian exactly. dollar have? You know, like, like they all, they're all just worthless pieces of paper. It's only the value that we add to them. You know, it's, it's, it's what we believe as a society has value um, exactly. If something something is valuable if there's a market for it. That's so right now, if I wanted to sell my crypto, my Bitcoin, I could sell that hundred a hundred times easier than I could sell a property. If I had a property right now, I would it could take me weeks or even months to sell it. Yeah. Whereas um if I've got if I've got Bitcoin, I just go online, I can go straight onto a exchange like Binance or even on um there's one called um Oh, what is it? There's a Bitcoins. There's a market for Bitcoin to private sellers. I could sell my Bitcoin and get cash at the current value pretty much instantly in the same way I could for cash. So it's, it's as liquid as, as shares with a broker now. So mm-hmm. anyone who says it's a scam, just plain don't understand the market. It's, mm-hmm. it's a whole new independent market now in its own right. And the only reason that there's still a lot of scammy cryptos is it's not regulated, which is good. And I, I personally, well, I, my observation is the market is sorting itself out. The really stupid coins now are either going broke or people are just not investing them anymore. Mm-hmm. So the market is naturally shaking itself out. Mm-hmm. And the last thing it needs is a government to get involved in. Well, and absolutely. And I will say one thing about, uh, to expand on my comment about intrinsic value. And I think this is another, another vote for gold and silver. Gold and silver does have intrinsic value. Look at something like exactly. silver, which is used in manufacturing, is used in film production, it's used in electronics, it's used in many different things. It has real worth, it has real life applications. Same with gold. They're using gold in fillings, they're using gold for jewelry, there's an immense amount of gold jewelry that is, you know, has been popular for, what, 50,000 years? I, I would say in the next five years, people are still going to want gold jewelry, they're still going to want to wear gold uh, wedding rings. You know, that's something that has intrinsic value to it. 
I guess that's another proponent for why I'm such a big fan of precious metals. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Warren, this has been a fantastic conversation, really fascinating to kind of jive with you oh. and chit-chat and, and go back and forth about sovereignty and di uh, different I things. agree. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Um, if my listeners want to learn more about you, what you do, if they want to reach out to you, where can we send them? Okay, so the best place to go to is to go to my, to our website, Wealthsafe, through www.wealthsafe.com.au. So what I will do is, I mean, yeah, I can even, I can even share my screen and quickly show, oh, no, it's a podcast, isn't it? But yeah, if you go to wealthsafe.com.au, you will see there's a resources section of a blog, which has got heaps of videos on sovereignty, on offshore, on tax, on asset protection on investing, on everything. And we've even got our own little client area. We've got a contact form where people can go there. But yeah, we've got heaps of stuff on there and on YouTube and everything. So yeah, if you look up Warren Black on YouTube, you'll find a few things. But wealthsafe.com.au, we've just got heaps of stuff going on there. And yeah, our blog is really, really busy, put it that way. There's, you could be busy for the next six weeks, Michal, just watching videos of reading our blog. Well, we've been on the phone a couple of times and I've gone through your content and seen your webinars and stuff like that. And you have some fantastic ideas about asset protection and the offshore markets. And maybe I'll get you back on the show and we can kind of dive into those things next time. But today it was real fun just to kind of harp on governments and socialism and uh, discuss some of the possibilities and, and look at the, the future. But um, no, it sounds good. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today, Warren, and I'll talk to you soon, okay? Yep, pleasure. Thank you. Well, it has been a really big year for me. My family and I successfully relocated from the UAE to Panama, and one of the first things that I did when I arrived here was search out a new offshore vault to hold a portion of my gold and silver. I looked extensively at all the options, not just in Panama, but around the world. The best places I found was Fort Kobe Depository, located in the free trade zone of Panama Pacifica. It's about 30 minutes away from my house. Now, you might think, wow, how lucky one of the best vaults in the world is only a 30-minute drive away. But the truth is that I moved to Panama so that I would be close to top-notch places just like this. Panama is one of the last bastions of freedom in the world, and entrepreneurs and investors are moving here in droves. I have been fortunate enough to visit Fort Kobe Depository, and I was blown away by the professionalism of the staff, as well as their dedication to the privacy of their clients. They offer things like 24-hour armed response, facial recognition, metal detectors, x-ray of goods, fingerprint biometrics, systemic sensors, volumetric sensors, infrared and thermal CCTV cameras, 24-hour off-site CCTV and alarm monitoring, reinforced concrete with anti-penetration steel, motion sensors, and embedded vehicular disabling devices to halt cars driving through walls. I understand that Panama might not be the first place that you would expect when looking for an offshore safety deposit box and vault, but trust me, I have toured the facilities in Switzerland and Austria, and they don't hold a torch to what has been built here in Panama. Panama really is the most up-and-coming country in the world that protects your privacy and respects your property, and the laws of the country reflect this. And the really incredible thing is you don't even have to live here like me to set up an account with Fort Kobe. 
The team at Fort Colby Depository can do everything remotely, and they can handle all the logistics of moving your gold and silver to their facility safely and in a tax-favorable manner. And if you have not started putting a portion of your wealth aside in gold and silver, then they can even help you purchase products directly from the Mint at the best possible prices and have them shipped to their facilities in Panama. So whether you are a seasoned gold bug or are just starting to recognize the importance of having some Plan B funds outside the banking industry, then the guys at Fort Kobe Depository are who you should talk to. To learn more, I highly recommend you go to fortcobedepository.com. That's F-O-R-T-K-O-B-B-E depository.com. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.